Welcome to the Good Listening To show on UK Health Radio with me, Chris Grimes. The feel-good show that brings you The Clearing, where all good questions come to be asked and all good stories come to be told. And where all my guests have two things in common. They're all creative individuals and all with an interesting story to tell. There are some lovely storytelling metaphors. A clearing, a tree, a storytelling exercise called 54321, some alchemy, some gold, some Shakespeare and a cake. So yes, who are you, what's your story and what life's lessons learned along your way would you like to share with us? So, welcome to a GLT with me, CG. See what I'm doing there and we're recording. So there we are. We're in and we're recording. It's my great pleasure uh, to welcome to the Good Listening To show and podcast clearing a lovely man who I've known for many years. He's known me for less time, but it's because I went to see something that was very seminal in my experience of theatre. I don't want to age us both failing, but it was 1999 when I came to see Shock-Headed Peter. Oh, wow. And it sort of changed my life in a really good way because uh, not just to blow smoke at you, which is partly my job. It's one of the best things I think I've seen. Um, so Phelim is a theatre maker and he's a pioneering improviser, as I say, theatre maker and conversation facilitator, co-artistic director of Improbable Theatre, uh, who are a, a very present force in improvisation. Obviously, I work in comedy improvisation, so there's some parallel also, uh, you may not remember this, but I had the gift of being the featured um, interviewee within one of your shows, Life Game, which happened for me as, I suppose, a bit of a gift to whoever you talk to. Um, and we can describe that. But Life Game was, was something I featured in. So I've been right at the heart of Improbable acting out aspects of my life when I was recounting stuff about being in Uganda between my being two and a half and ten. Again, that was incredibly memorable, stuff that I I will never forget because it's fairly unique that you're wrapped in theatre. But anyway, Phelium, you're very, very welcome to the Good Listening To Show Clearing. Morning. Thank you. Morning. And as we started to, to speak... Here. You're, you're apologising for planes going over because you're, you're sitting under a, you're in a beautiful conservatory or conservatoire, but you're under a flight path, I hear. I'm under a flight path and uh, I can track basically uh, the, um, the, the relaxing of restrictions. <laughs> it was kind of amazing time when, when lockdown happened and the planes stopped because it totally changed the atmosphere here because the 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 quiet was very different but slowly and they're not as often as they were yes and uh, the discussions about that extra runway seem to have kind of lost their uh, impetus at the moment <laughs> in a good way i'm sure yeah. <laughs> so i'm going to run you through the storytelling structure and it's it's a real delight to bring a natural storyteller and enabler of theater space i mean you you do it on an epic scale because you know obviously i know what you do but you direct plays on an epic scale in that you do it on the most, I suppose, epic arena possible in the world of theatre, which is you direct opera as well. I'm a late, I'm a late uh, um, convert to opera, I have to say. So, uh, but yes, I've been, I've been making operas, which is, is the last thing I ever expected I would end up doing, I have to say. And get you for the theatre space of yes and, because presumably someone asked you one day and you went, uh, yes and, okay. <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, that, I mean, there is a story in that, which is that I was asked to direct um, a Philip Glass opera and it was his first opera, which he didn't really 
considered to be an opera until it, it got double booked into an opera space and got reviewed as an opera. And uh, it was a piece of experimental music theatre that was so crazy and groundbreaking. And someone said, do you want to, um, do you want to direct that? And I said, well, it's, why would I want to direct that? That's like trying to tell someone they should have had a different dream because it was so you know, imaginative <laughs> of the piece. But then I, I discussed with him and he suggested another opera, which was about Gandhi, and I ended up directing that. And you say crazy and groundbreaking. And if I may, that's a great sort of definition of what I think you're, you're all about. I think you're in a really, this is a compliment to you, you're crazy and groundbreaking. Um, and even looking at you today, it's just really a real pleasure to, 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 have, to be here with a real theatre maker. That, that, you... that's, that's nice. I mean, it's kind of weird, you know, you as an improviser, you know, uh, people go, oh, you're an improviser, be wacky, you know. So it, it's slightly in that territory, crazy and groundbreaking. So, yeah, but that, I'll, I'll go with that this morning. And it... And it's the idea of swimming away from the reef a bit where it gets a bit cold and and it's about taking risks. And of course, the empty space of all theatre, which is an empty space brimming and charged with potential is what I think we probably both enjoy. Yes. And I know that you've become a real creative foil of Philip Glass because he's he's it's combining two of your great passions. You adore his work, but also now the fact you're in the opera arena must be incredibly satisfying. Yeah. I mean, I, I just made a show recently about I mean, maybe it comes in one of the later questions, but uh, um, about my long-term relationship with his music in my theatre shows, because there's a thread that runs all the way through um, the very first show that I created when I left college. We used his music in that show. And uh, yeah, so it, it, that the show that I just made, which actually I should currently be in Germany performing this week, which is very sad because I'm not. Um, but he wrote some music for that. And uh, he's a he's a it's a storytelling show about my obsession with Philip, basically. And please do let your thinking unfold about that, too. So shall we get cracking then with yep. through the storytelling uh, journey? I'm going to batch you along as usual. It's all to play for because we've got the clearing itself, which I'll get you to describe in a minute. Then we've got a tree. We've got some storytelling to, apples to fall out of that tree. We've got alchemy gold. And then by a bit of cheeky Shakespeare, we've got a cake. So it's all to play for. Okay. At the end, by the way, I will invite you to go really deep on your own URLs, uh, kind sir. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. And you can I mention... try and remember my URLs, Mrs. Yes, Mrs. Vicar. So, uh, Phelan McDermott, uh, wonderful uh, English actor and stage director. Um, what is a clearing like for you, literally or metaphorically, please? Um, so, a, a clearing, which I guess would be a space where you feel um, some a sense of space a sense of uh, relaxation. Um, it does connect to what I was just talking about, the, the show uh, that I made um, with Philip Glass, because for many years, um, since the early to mid eighties, um, I read a book, um, which was a, a book about floating, that is floating in a flotation tank. And at the time that was a very, uh, crazy groundbreaking thing at the time because there were very few float centers around um, so I would seek them out and I um, basically got interested in floating in flotation tanks and what that was like and um, for me I get a lot of pelvic pain get, uh, pain in my body in, in my pelvis used to cycle can't anymore um, and one of the the physical ways that I go into a clearing is I 
booked myself. I go, I must do that thing. I must book myself afloat. And I um, opened the lid of this. Sometimes it's a pod. Sometimes it's a room. And you step into the darkness with not very much water, high concentrate salt solution. And basically, like the Dead Sea, you bob on the top of the water and um, you're in darkness because you shut the lid. And I was going to ask about the coffin-like nature of it. I remember flotation tanks being around. I'm not so sure. I mean, when was the last time you floated, sir? Uh, Yesterday. Oh, I like that. Good. I kind of thought, I'll book a float before this interview. Oh. Um, And it's, it's, it's great because... You know, one of the things someone told me years ago about olives was if you want if you want to get to like olives, you've got to eat at least five olives before you know whether you like them or not. So there's a kind of threshold. It's a great philosophy. <laughs> there's a there's a threshold with flotation. I would say is when you need to do at least three floats before you know whether you really like it or not, or whether it's your thing. So I can imagine um, there could be a bit of panic attached with the darkness and the floating, and the, and because it is a real detachment. And maybe a, a return to one centre. I mean, you can describe and tell I mean, us that. Lots. You return to your. I mean, basically, the scary thing is, and the wonderful thing is, it's just you and you <laughs> in there, <laughs> um, and all the bits of you that might come, and that involves uh, tapping into. You become aware of your inner world, literally your physical inner world, because very, very. You can sometimes hear your own heartbeat. But sometimes people say, isn't it claustrophobic in there? Um, And I would say it's almost the opposite. It's more a sense of space. So almost agoraphobic as the other extreme. Maybe, yes. But I, you know, some people don't like it, of course, like impro. Um, But I find it the most beautiful place to be. It's like a kind of black, silky space in which I can become really aware of myself and what's going on within me I can if I'm working on a show or some or something I can use that space as a very creative space because I'll have I will have ideas and thoughts that I didn't know I was going to have which brings me back to the first thing that we talked about um which is that um the idea for the Um, show with Philip came about because we were going to do another show we were going to adapt a Maurice Sendak piece and that all fell through and got cancelled and there was no show and I was floating in the tank and I got an image in the tank and in this in the tank I saw this image of myself and I'm a puppeteer as well as an improviser on stage um, and I was um manipulating tissue paper like we've done in some of our shows and it can you can create a beautiful images with tissue paper a bit like fire watching kind of thing and I thought oh it's me on stage in a show of my own and then I was aware that there was music playing and I became aware there was someone playing a piano and then I realized it was Philip Glass on stage with me I'd got this image of us on stage together that sounded like the scariest thing I could possibly imagine, which was, can I ask Philip Glass to be in a show with me on, on stage? And just as a kind of jump to the future, there's a piece of tissue paper here that I'm holding. You yeah. might hear rustling. I do. And it's, it's, I don't know if you can see that. 
Tower of Glass number one flotation, it says. And that is a piece of music that Philip Glass wrote um, as part of the show, which is about me climbing into a flotation tank and having an idea of making a show with him. And art reflecting life, life reflecting art, boom, right there. I love well, that. Well, sort of that thing where, you know, I think some of the creative journeys I've been on are about that, where you see rhymes in things. And I had no idea what that show was going to be, except that I'd seen this image of us on stage together. And John McGrath from the International, uh, Manchester International Festival said, well, go and ask him. So I basically had to do that scariest of things, which was ask your, or one of your heroes. Yes. If they'd be in something together. And he would ask me, well, what's in the show? I said, I don't know yet, but it, it's just me and you. And, and that we had this meeting and I thought he's not convinced by this idea. He did kept he saying, well, idea, did he have any idea who you were? Or Yes, because I'd just been directing his operas. So we had a kind of re working relationship stroke friendship that was, you know, uh, we, we could, you know, hang out together. But I'd never asked him to be in a show with me. Yes. Um, or to write the music for a show. And at the end of that meeting, he said... Um, he kept saying, "Well, there'll be puppets in it," and I said, "Yeah, there'll be puppets. There'll there'll be there'll be Taoist puppetry in it. <laughs> Just, doesn't exist. Uh, does now." Um, and at the end of the meeting, he said, "Well, the great thing about this project we seem to be doing together is that neither of us knows what's going to happen." Um, Anything so, uh, is possible, right there. I love that. There was the impro um, kind of thing of we. The most comfortable place, apart from a flotation tank, I would say, for me, is on stage when I don't know what's going to happen next. Far less scary than having some lines you've got to remember. Yes, I, 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 I hear you. I get that. Also, I feel very chuffed and flattered that you took it upon yourself to go to a flotation tank yesterday, um, which, which is flattering for me that this meant something to you in the sense of I will go and th have some thoughts. So what happened yesterday, if I may ask, not about today, but what, what was it like for you yesterday? Um, th th it's a kind of strange thing because, you know, you, you can have good floats and bad floats, not really, <laughs> but you go, ah, because your mind is, it, it's, it's like meditation for free. Um, because sometimes if you have a good float, you can go deep, really fast. And it seems like the hour float um, has gone in five minutes and you're, you've gone to this deep theta level, they call it. Sometimes you're in there for like 45 minutes with your brain chattering away with the thing that you're worrying about. And then suddenly you go deep. Sometimes you stay up there. But when you get out of the tank, the world is definitely brighter, more alive, more vibrant than it was before. So even when you have a bad float, there's kind of, and your body feels, you feel like you're in your body and connected to your body in a way that I guess some people get through things like yoga or Feldenkrais or whatever as, as kind of practices. But that's very inspirational in that I feel too frenetic to meditate often. So that's inspired me. I think I'm going to have to go and give flotation a go because of everything you've been describing. It sounds very seismic and profound. But remember, you've got to do at least three to know. Five, if I may come back to the maths of the olives. Love that. <laughs>
Um, so, by the way, that you're the first person in the clearing to, to describe a flotation tank as your place to go. So it's wonderful that you've got a factory default setting of, of the flotation tank. And where where do you go to float? Is have you got one nearby? Have you got a sort of um, the, there's a place called Floatworks, um, which is um, <laughs> it's in um, it's now in Vauxhall. It used to be in London Bridge. Um, when I first started out, and I talk about this in the show, uh, I, I would seek out flotation places. There used to be a place in Clapham. Um, but there was also, at one point, I found a, a place that was in a guy's bedroom in Tooting. And he was like, I was like, what the hell was I doing? But in his, he had a kind of flotation tank in his room. Well, I wondered and, uh, whether you'd get one installed because people get jacuzzis installed. I wondered whether you'd ever think of getting. Your yeah, own. I mean, I, if I had a, you know, if I had money, I would, I would buy myself a flotation tank and I'd, I'd just go in there and stay in there. I think. If I ever strike it, if I ever strike gold in in a different way, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give you one. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So. In your clearing, then within the float within the the flotation tank, the slightly weird construct now is I'm going to arrive with a tree if you'd allow me in your deep meditated okay. space. So it I'm seeing my pod. It's like a big pod that looks like a sort of, you know, a Jerry Anderson kind of almost like a spaceship. You lift the lid. That's in the clearing, and there's a tree next to it. Okay. It's very sort of waiting for Godot-esque now because it's everything. Yeah. It's nothing. Here it is. So yeah. we're going to shake your tree now within your clearing to uh, now do the storytelling construct of five, four, three, two, one. Where, yeah. as usual, failure, McDermott, you've had uh, time to have thought about four things that have shaped you, three mm -hmm. things that inspire you, two things that never fail to grab your attention. And borrow from the film up, I always go, oh, squirrels at this point, what never fails to distract you. And then one quirky or unusual fact about you that we couldn't possibly know until you tell us. So over to you to interpret that as you wish. Well, I mean, so, and do I do I run through all those fast? It's uh, no, not there's not necessarily about speed. It's just it's yeah. open to interpretation and okay. an invitation to go deep, and the flotation tank allows for that. Um, so I, I can't. An interesting thing, sort of things that shape you. So I guess that I'm thinking about things that, if you look back and you go, if that hadn't happened, there's a whole thing that wouldn't happen, and there's something that I've never. I've never talked to anyone for a long, long time. And I've got, I, I found these, I went and hunted this out down the bottom of the garden. Um, and it, this is a, um, I don't know if you can see that. It's a little medal. Yes, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. And on, on the medal, it says the Poetry Lovers Fellowship for Beautiful Utterance. And then on, on the back, it says, unless the world is to perish. And it is basically, I, I went to a strange school. My parents took, sent me to this strange school called Norman House. It was pretty horrendous. But once a year, a visiting person came to the school and she was an elocution examiner. She was rather large and formidable. And on that day, everything else stopped. And you had to... Um, recite two pieces of poetry and you stood at one end of the room and way in the distance because it's the scale is different because i'm small this is 1974 so i was born in 60 so i'm nine and i i i say my poem um and uh, it's a it was a i think a walter de la mer poem 
who is the was was the then president of the Fo Poetry Lovers Fellowship. See, Poetry Lovers, I would have failed already. Love but I've got my little medals. I've got three of them. And they were basically uh, little affirmations of what I really um, loved, which was performing. I love it um, to three as well. You're given three affirmations, which is uh, enough to make the spell come true. Look, two bronze ones. And then at the last one is a silver one. Look at that. So the gold is yet to come. So there's somewhere out there in the world, there are some other people who did those uh, elocution. I mean, it, it was basically talk posh for northern people. <laughs> <laughs> Very Alan Bennett-esque. And, and, but it, I, and I, I, the, the, the memory I have is looking way into the distance and there's a big desk. And I remember going home and telling my mum about the elocution exam. And the one thing that I really remembered was that as I was saying my po poem, all I could see underneath the desk was an enormous pair of bloomers this woman was wearing. So they, that's how far back we're going in time. Love that. And, back to the bloomers when you were nine. And, and I, I, I would just say that, of course, there are other things like, you know, um, you know, my mum's love of Shakespeare. She was an English teacher. She took me to the theatre. That's part of it. But I can track my first sense of being a performer to those little moments of saying those poems. Um, and a Walter so Delamere was your first utterance, is what I heard there. Is that right? It, it, it would be. Uh, I can't remember the poem. It was probably something about the moon. Slowly, silently, now the moon walks the night in its silver shoon. I've got no idea what, if that's right or what it means. But it um, is right because what it means to you is what it means. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, that's like a, a seam that goes back to the beginning of my early days uh, as a performer. Um, other things that shaped me? Have, have I got to... How many have I got? You've got um, four things that have shaped you, three that inspire you. I mean, it, it's flexible. I don't flexible. know if there's overlap either. So just go I where mean, you I, like riffing on this wonderful theme. Um, I would say um, my mum uh, was an English teacher. So I would say my her love of books and her, her um, kind of sense that books and reading was this really important thing. I was not good at school, really. Um, I, I then went on to Manchester Grammar School and I academically did not do well, went to the Dramatic Society and that kind of saved me from exams and those things. But I've always had the love of books and reading and early childhood uh, books, Alan Garner books, you know, kind of magical uh, books. And um, I... I Books have had a big influence on me, and they're one of the things that I consider to be my friends. Were you an only child or siblings? What, what no, happened? I mean, I, I, I was, I was in between two sisters, a much a, an older sister, and then I had a closer, uh, three years younger sister. But even though I wasn't an only child in that dynamic. I was slightly in my own world, I think. Um, and in some ways I was an only child in my head type thing. So books and the relationships and friendships I made from those books and the sense that you could, you know, 
connect to people through books is definitely a thing that's shaped me. And that was the beginning of storytelling and an awareness of it then. Yeah. And that that being such an important thing, you know, my mum and dad, they they're he was a computer engineer, but he also had a real love of literature and books. And that, I would say, is a very formative thing. And my my house is full of books. It's a tip of books, 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 books. Um, so I would say over the years, the things that have continued to shape me, I've, I've found through books. So the next thing I'd mention that shaped me um, was that whilst at college, I read a book called Impro, uh, which I'm sure you know, uh, by a man called Keith Johnston. And um, I'd um, left college and formed a theatre company when we uh, first with a, 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 another theatre artist at the time called Julia Barnsley. And we formed a theatre company with a really stupid name called Derek Derek Productions. Of course you did. <laughs> and our first show was... Um, an adaptation of an Ian McEwan short story that I was the solo performer in. We used Philip Glass's Glassworks music for that show. There's another one of the threads. Um, and each year, we, it would take us a year to make a show. We were, we were on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. I remember that, yes. Yeah, which, which meant that you would just about scrape by. Yeah. Um, uh, we would make a show and they were kind of, they were great shows and they did very well, but they were exercises in perfection in some ways. And we'd plan what they were like and we'd visualise them and then, and then we'd make the show and they would be very good. And then um, Julia got other jobs and she went off to uh, direct at the Royal Court and the National. And I was slightly left thinking, oh, what do I do? And I'd read Keith's book and in the back of the stage, it was a tiny advert. It was really small. And it was for a workshop in, um, in Dorset, um, organised by John, a man called John Oram and Anne Jellico, who were big in the community theatre movement. And I went and did a 10-day course with Keith Johnston. And it totally turned my world upside down and changed my working creative life, but also, in a way, my life as well. Because it was, it was like it turned the world upside down, inside out, around this idea, having come from a school that was about, you've got to get it all right, perfection, we're the best, all this stuff. And it, it was a discovery that creativity was very often held back by the idea of perfection and the idea of getting things right. There's a right answer, there's a wrong answer. Mm -hmm. And Keith had a series of exercises and games and a manner in the way that he taught, which basically was incredibly supportive of ideas coming from left field, coming from mistakes, and the idea that failure was an important part of the process to embrace as a step towards great ideas. I mean, it is um, a truly seminal book. I yeah, absolutely yeah. relate to that. That and Peter Brook's The Empty Space are both about yeah. where anything is possible. Yeah. And uh, one of the big things on that uh, thing, people think about impro, and of course they think about the crazy, wacky 
um, comedy impro thing. Keith's big thing was that the the hardest skill to learn on stage, but it's a skill that you need to learn if you want to tell stories, is the skill to be obvious and to do the obvious thing and make the obvious choice. Because of the pressure to be interesting and to be original, we will tend to go, we've got to think of a clever idea, a funny idea. But actually, if you want to create truly interesting and stories that go into places that are exciting and transformative you have to learn how to do the obvious thing and as a person over the years who has been lucky enough with the comedy store players to play the comedy store you know for many weeks over the years it's really interesting because as you know in impro you ask for suggestions and uh, people um they they shout their suggestions out and they genuinely want to help the scenes be good and so they go i'll think of something really funny original and every week they shout exactly the same things yeah. henry the yeah. yeah. <laughs> toilet vibrator <laughs> abattoir <laughs> and and it's not malicious it's it's part of that process of the pressure to be interesting actually produces the same thing whereas in the moment if you do the next obvious thing it will lead you like crumbs into the wood into areas that you would never plan but it's such a hard thing to do because it almost and another one of Keith's exercises is go on stage and try and see if you can bore the audience <laughs> yes absolutely not not to be boring yes but to see if you can like and what that means is basically you slow down and you have time to think about what the next step is to see the obvious next thing that if you have a loaf of bread in front of you um the wacky performer will rip it up and but the obvious thing to do is to cut yourself a sandwich a slice of bread yeah and if you keep following the next thing there will come a point because it's impossible not to for something odd, strange to happen of its own accord. And it won't be an idea that you came up with. It will be a happenstance idea or from the big impro god mind, which you're not in control of. Consequently, because you're not in control of it, you will be more interesting because you'll be vulnerable. Yes, the so, true notion of presence there as well, to be truly present to just what's in front of you and then creativity is just a few threads away. Yeah, yes, and, and you know, uh, original ideas, you can always... Uh, I think about, um, you know, we did this show called Sticky and it was basically, a, 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 you know, it looked like a wacky idea. It was, it was we built a tower, a 100-foot tower out of sellotape with lots of fireworks and we, we lifted it up with a crane and it was like a kind of beautiful shimmering tower because when you lit the sellotape, it glowed in a beautiful way. Now that looks like a sort of um, a crazy mad idea, but actually it was the next obvious thing. So we'd done a first show where we played with sellotape on a small scale to create uh, um, rooms in a house. Then we did a production of Midsummer Night's Dream where we went, oh, let's use sellotape to make the forest. and the fairies and oh they'll be like spiders because it's like spider webs and then 
there was the Glasgow Year of Architecture. And in between two buildings was a gap. And Julian Crouch, the designer, we said, well, maybe we should build a building in between that. We should make it out of sellotape. And that's, and it's actually a journey of doing the next most obvious thing. And it will lead you to interesting places. And many artists, you know, think about Picasso. He yeah. has really, all he did was the next thing, the next yeah. thing. And it leads somewhere interesting. This is lovely stuff, Fail. I'm loving it. And uh, my job, obviously, is to curate us through. Keep me moving. So to keep you moving. So um, we could get on to three things that inspire you. Now, you're giving me inspiration and you're, you're giving it. Yes. So, so don't worry about any overlap, but just just keep shaking your tree. Um, uh, one of the one of my inspirations is a, um, a man called Michael Chekhov. I don't know if you've heard of Michael Chekhov. He was Anton Chekhov's nephew. And he wrote a book called it's the books again. So really it's books. Um, he wrote a book called To the Actor. And it's quite an old fashioned book, but it's a manual of how to be on stage, perform. And um, he created a technique that was a development of Stanislavski's technique. Now, those of you who know theatre, Stanislavski, one of the things they talk about is sense memory. So you use a memory from your past. Michael Chekhov was his student was famous for this workshop where um, he did the scene of, uh, of of how when he's of recreating when his father had died, he did this beautiful scene of of himself at, the, at his father's grave, and he moved everyone to tears in this sense memory exercise where he'd called on this this um, past event, and Stanislavski was very angry because three weeks later he discovered that. Michael Chekhov's father was still alive and it, it wasn't yeah. <laughs> it was a sense memory thing. I actually became most interested in, in Michael Chekhov's book because it's mentioned in a small sentence in Impro. So it's like a little clue, looking for clues. And that's something that inspires me. I'm hearing but, small windows as well. The small window of the advert for the workshop uh, with Keith Johnston. And then there's a small window in his yes. book. So there's lots of portals to watch. Yeah, I'd call them dream doors. So oh. they're like, yeah, yeah, they're like dream doors to the dreaming. And uh, Michael Chekhov's work absolutely connects to this sense of there being another realm, which is the imaginative realm or the, or the dream realm, using imagery. So on stage, as a performer, you use images on stage, movement qualities where the space around you, you imagine to be a substance that exists and you're pushing through. Um, and it's a beautiful old fashioned book, uh, almost so old fashioned that you think this is, it is like, why would you do this? Strange. <clears throat> I followed the instructions. You know, I literally, when I'll do this first exercise and slowly through that um, I began using his technique um, I now use it in all my directing work um, and one of his techniques is that you use if you're going to work with a character you like in in your flotation tank you go now tell me Hamlet how how do I perform this bit and you imagine the character coming towards you and they can in your imagination show you how to perform bits and you say well that's not quite right show me what the costume's like show me what 
and you basically have a conversation with this image in your mind. I started teaching Michael Chekhov work and I used his teaching method to work out how to teach his method, which was I imagined Michael Chekhov coming to me and I'd say, so how do I teach this? And he would come to me. He was long since dead, of course. And uh, he would uh, tell me how to do the exercises. And how so I, I, I was taught by Michael Chekhov you were. in the dreaming realm. Yes, there's there's sort of a, a playing it forward visionary thing. It almost it's made me think of the book of Kells, the idea that, that monks way back when would record stuff and it's how yeah. last and the long tail of and the fact you pick it up means the gap, the bridge has been the, the, the gap has been bridged. I think this is important because sometimes uh, with a technique, people can become very rigid and there's a one way to do it, but his technique was that it would need to keep being reimagined yeah and then many years later went on a on a um, workshop in america an organization called misha which because michael shekhoff ended up in america in movies he's in hitchcock hitchcock's films um and uh, he plays a psychiatrist in um i can't remember the film i'll, I'll, I'll uh, it's not vertigo it's it's the one where the guy never mind he's in one of the hitchcock <laughs> films but he ended up in hollywood and in America. So there's a big group of people who work with him. Some of them, one or two of them still alive. Um, and they said, oh, how did you, um, how did you come to work with this technique? Because I was like, I didn't know anything. I thought I've, I'm, I'm a pretender. I've just done it from his book. And I said, well, I, you know, he taught me, uh, I followed his methods and he taught me how to teach his work. That's how I was doing it. So imposter syndrome. Um, I, I'm still an inspiration now. Yes, I will. Uh, we will get a lick on shortly, but um, and yes. this is so, so rich, by the way, but keep going. Um, I would say inspiration. One of the things I'm going to mention is silence. And um, just because as we're supposed to get a lick on, for instance, um, the it's, it's they call it dead air on the radio, you know, and and. But what I've discovered over the years, especially with improv, is there are moments where there's nothing happening and there's silence. And the fear makes you want to fill it. Um, and so if you can wait and trust, something might emerge from that silence. And I think, I may have made this up, but I think it's Eckhart Tolle says there's no new idea that hasn't got some relationship to silence. And I think new ideas, creativity, need to de develop a relationship with silence because those are the moments where no one knows anything. And those are the moments, if you can hold them, and they're often un uncomfortable for some people, but for me, in the world of impro, I realised that I was, over the years, getting sort of turned on by silence on stage. Because that was the moment that was truly, like, no one knows anything. And the most exciting moments. I did this opera, uh, Satyagraha, about Gandhi. And as I say, opera was very new to me. Um, 
But what I discovered in that opera, there's this there's this extraordinary bit in the in the opera where people in um, South Africa they're burning their record cards as a protest, and uh, there's a kind of ceremony ritual they do where they burn their cards. And in this piece of music, there are these moments of silence. And my first opera that I directed in the Colosseum Theatre. And there's these moments where the music's so full and so forth, and then this silence happens. And what I realised was that that silence, a la John Cage, was just as much part of the music as the notes were part of the music. I mean, it's of you know that's no you know it's an obvious thing, of course, but that silence was created just as much by the audience as by the musicians, and that. Michael Chekhov work again, the atmosphere. So I get inspired by silence. Um, by the way, that's so relatable from the idea of the most magical moment that can often happen at the very, very end when the audience doesn't want to move. Yes. And coming full circle, there is that line from Hamlet, and the rest is silence. Yes. Awesome. Uh, Completely agree with you. That's just brilliant. So now we're talking about um, two things that never fail to grab your attention. Uh, the two things, the two mistakes. I'm cutting down on time there. Uh, mistakes. Uh, again, with impro, uh, I got interested in impro because I realised that the interesting moments on stage were the mistakes. That they were the moments that were most theatrical. And that if you included them, and you brought them into the, folded them into the narrative, then the audience, instead of it, you, there's a belief in that moment. You go, oh, if I mention that mistake that's happened, I could destroy everything. And I might break the suspension of disbelief. Counterintuitively, what happens is, if you include the mistake, the audience can go deeper. Yes. They're reminded that it's a live moment it's actually the most obvious thing to do. If a mistake happens, deal with it or include it or find out what the gift in it is. And so I would say the thing in a workshop when I'm teaching, there'll be something that's, there'll be the plan of how the workshop's going and then there'll be this secondary thing, which is the interruption, the disturbance, the person who walks into the room, the cleaner that walks <laughs> through. Yes, absolutely. Um, or the thing in the room that's like, you know, the fly that, you know, it is sort of, you know, I have to tell this story. We did this show called Spirit and Spirit was, we've done lots of years of saying yes and in our shows and saying yes to each other. And we decided to do a show where we did the opposite, where we said no to each other a lot. So it's an impro show about conflict and war. It had a, we devised it, had an improvised beginning and an improvised end. And we did it in New York on press night. At the beginning, we'd pop it, very big catchy, and we'd pop out of this raised, uh, steep set from these trapdoors, three performers, me, Lee and Guy. And in, in the theatre, this fly, enormous fly was flying around, <laughs> and it landed on the set right in front of Lee, and we talked about it. And then we you know, talked about the fly, and then we disappear. Then we'd do the show, and then at the end of the show, we'd often talk about the mistakes or the things that had gone wrong in the show. We'd have a go at each other. We'd say, 
you got that li- what was going on when you got that line wrong what were you thinking about and we'd unpick them we got to the end of the show and the fly came back and every now and again it had been flying around during the show now our lighting designer was in the audience we included it in the beginning and the end of the show and it, it, there were these two late old like new york ladies in there. I, and one of them said I hated that show. I really hated it. <laughs> and, uh, and the woman who was with us said, what, what do you mean? You, you, I didn't hate it. I found it was quite interesting. And the, and the woman said, no, no, I hated it. And the, woman, the other woman said, yeah, but what about the moment with the fly? And the woman said, that was a mechanical fly. Oh, wow. Yes. So in her imagination, it was easier for us to have built a radio-controlled mechanical fly to include in the show than it was to include the the, the, the fly. So there it is. There's the thing that in the, always... In the disruption is the magic. I just love Exactly. That. In, the, in that is the gift, yeah. By the way, this is such a rich conversation. I have an instinct to make this a part one and a part two. So if we do stray over time for any listeners, we will make this a part two. Okay. I really don't want to hurry you. This is very rich stuff. So one of my invitations to you is can we maybe continue it another time? Sure. But um, this is just wonderful. Um, could we assume that the tree is shaken just for yes. this? And now uh, when you're giving me this anyway, but let's talk about alchemy and gold now. When you're at purpose, Phelan McDermott, and in flow... Mm. What is it you most love to bring? Um, one of the things that I've noticed that I do, and it, it relates to the silence thing, is, is the gap. And and we've not the clothing store, um, but the, the thing, that, that liminal space in between things. Um, so um, very often, in our shows we said you've got to make sure there's a gap there and that gap is where it's like the dream door that the audience can put their imagination into and even in shows where people are sitting all facing the same way just looking and it looks like they're quite passive they're not actually passive if it's a good show because they're dreaming into that gap and i think for me this idea of the gap between things has been the most creative space for me And sometimes that gap is over here is this thing and over here is this thing. Over here is puppetry and over here is impro. What's in between those two things? So we created a show called Animo, which was basically improvising with puppets. And then another example of that would be um, this the, the last big opera I did of Phillips was um, Akhenaten, which was about uh, the pharaoh in ancient Egypt. And I went in the flotation tank. And in the flotation tank, I had an image where I went, oh. And I saw people juggling. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't really like juggling. Um, but juggling in a Philip Glass opera about ancient Egypt, that would be really, that's so stupid an idea, I can't ignore it. And I felt in my body this feeling of like, it was definitely like that thing where they said guts feeling was in my middle. I knew it was right, but I had to convince the then uh, artistic director of the opera house that doing juggling in uh, an opera was a sensible idea. Um, I knew it would be 
controversial, but it, it's Philip Glass, so it's, you know, it, I wasn't breaking some... And I definitely want to talk to you about Akhenaten as well, obviously. Yes. Um, I have an yes. instinct, using your lovely construct of dream door, yes. I, I would like to um, just reassure listeners that this is coming up to the end of part one, and with yes. your permission, Phelan, this is enjoying the disruption of... Okay, sure. Uh, we're gonna. This is coming up to the end of part one of my wonderful time in the clearing with the wonderful yeah. theatre maker and conversation starter, yeah. hearing uh, failing McDermott. So that's going to be the end of part one. Uh, and so <laughs> I'm not quite sure what the time is doing till I get the film to download again. But I've got a feeling that this is coming up to the end of part one. So you're listening to the Good Listening To show and the Good Listening To podcast with me, Chris Grimes, and the wonderful human being that is Mr. Phelan McDermott. So now using the construct, if I may, of a dream door to bridge the gap, yes. not the clothing chain from part one to part two. I'll just allow a little silence to hang. And I think we're back in with Phelan McDermott for what is going to be part two. We talked about a construct called Dream Door. So uh, let's get back to you in the clearing. And please do listen to part one if you've not listened to it, because this is part two and part one's awesome. So back to you, Phelan McDermott. I'm, I'm giving you a good listening to here in the good listening to space. Mm. And um, we're shaking your tree. I, I feel awful that I sort of hurried you out of the tree canopy mm. uh, so, so let's get back into wherever you'd like to go back in you just started at the end of part one to talk about Akhenaten uh, so yes. what's your instinct where would you like to go next I wanted to mention one thing uh, because um, it's a little bit that it goes back to the what thing can't you ignore you know the squirrel um, uh, moment is and I would say synchronicities so in this conversation about whether you could put juggling into an opera. I then started uh, researching good juggling companies and there's a company called the Sean Gandini company and they're amazing choreographic jugglers and they do sort of like pattern juggling. And I started looking at their work and seeing how beautiful it was. And it looks like a visual metaphor of Philip Glass's music. And this is an opera about Akhenaten the ancient Egyptian pharaoh, who um, was the first monotheist, purportedly. Um, there'd been multi-Egyptian gods, but he decided that they would worship the sun. And uh, anyway, I, I contacted Sean Gandini. I said, I've got this idea of maybe using juggling in an opera. And it's an opera about the ancient Egyptians. And, had and Sean seen, said... Sorry to interrupt you. Had you seen juggling in hieroglyphic form, which gave you the well, idea... This was, this was the thing. I did not know this. And Sean said to me, you do know the first ever image of juggling is an Egyptian hieroglyphic. And I said, no. He said, yes. He said, and I, I, I Googled it. And of course, there's this picture of these women juggling. And I was like, well, of course, this has to be in the opera. <laughs> wow. So that felt like one of those moments that's, you know, a synchronicity moment where you go, I, it, the dreaming world is telling me that this is right. I can't ignore it. And at a certain point, that feeling means that you can't go back, as it were, because it feels like you're being supported by the dreaming world to trust in that idea. And I'm so sorry, I nearly, I, I accidentally nearly uh, stole your punchline there. Because you did. And I'm very sorry about that because I it was just fired off. Wow, I wonder where you knew juggling could even feature. Um, and now um, it, 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 it happened at the Coliseum and 
um, at the New York Met. And of course, we made um, an enormous image, which um, is on the picture for the hint of the sun that's going to be released on Friday, I think. It's very yeah. current, yes, because this has and, come back yeah. for you, the whole opera, hasn't it? It's something yeah. you're reincorporating and, and bringing back into the space of the opera. Yeah, and then there's this bit where um, he sings a hymn to the sun. That we, The Tompai created this enormous glowing orb. And, of course, it didn't really occur to me, but we'd actually made one giant juggling ball. So there's a bit where the jugglers juggle in front of it, and they look like... The juggling balls look like atoms. So it almost like goes down to this kind of microscopic, super microscopic level. But they, of course, they're they're juggling and they're basically worshiping the great big juggling god. Wow. And did you see these the weather exhibition, as it was called, at the Tate Modern, which was this fantastic sunshine? You know, I I I I'd seen pictures of that and I, I was sad that I never actually saw it because I'm sure that's, you know, I'm sure that's one of those inspirations that, that Tom maybe drew on for, for the design. Um, it, it was by Olafia Eliasson. Yeah. You probably know that. But um, by happy accident, um, I found myself at the Tate Modern seeing that. And as you've probably seen or, or heard described, it is the most beautiful thing. Yeah. And the clever thing within the massive expense of the uh, expanse of the Tate Modern, they put mirrors on the ceiling. And I oh, just, wow. the theatrical intent and what happened was people just went and blissed yeah. out, looking yeah. at themselves uh, from about 300 feet in their reflection. But this sunlight was just like moths to a flame. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I must come and see Aknaten because it sounds like that's going to be just awesome. Where is it? Where is it being performed? I know you should be in Germany. Uh, I mean, they, they, the Met did it and they live streamed it and they've just released it. So you can get it on DVD now, which is, is good. But it will be happening at the Met again. And uh, don't know for sure, but it will probably happen at the Coliseum again. The big dream, I have to say, there's a trilogy of operas. One's about Einstein, one's about Gandhi and one's about Agnaughton. The big dream would be to... to I finally do Einstein on the Beach, which was the first opera that I was asked to do. And then we can do the, the trilogy um, in its, you know, it, it's Wagnerian, I would say, in scale. But yes. uh, the idea of doing all three would be really brilliant. Is, uh, you've heard it first here, Felim Adomo's ring cycle. It's going to be your, exactly. your you need to just the take glass cycle. Yeah. Yes, the glass cycle. You need to take over the Met for how, how long do you need in the Met to get all three pumped out into the world? Well, I think in order to make them, it may be that Einstein has to happen not, I don't know, but not on a stage um, so that they can be, you know, in rep. Because the big thing about opera is that in rep, they have to change all the sets and all that. Um, so to be explored, and I'm beginning to explore some imagery and stuff around Einstein. And hopefully as we come out of lockdown, there'll be some stages towards creating that show. And do you have an instinct to be Einstein yourself? Because uh, obviously, you know, again, it's a compliment. The hair. You're yes. looking at my hair, aren't you? I, I am. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, a, it's an interesting one because in the original opera, there is someone playing a violin as Einstein, of course, but I can't play the violin, so it won't be me. Um, I, I think I'm going to have to go in the tank and find out what the images are. And it, it may be one idea, and I again, I have no idea if this is right or not, it may be that some of the 
in those operas, we play with materials in different ways. We we put sticky tape into uh, uh, a a and built a kind of wall of protest um, with sticky tape. And there's an interest. There's an interesting story there. So in Aknarton, there's nudity, which is kind of you know is slightly controversial, but not that controversial really. The biggest taboo in opera is making noise where you shouldn't. <laughs> so in Act Three of uh, Satyagraha, we do this thing where the skills puppeteers team make this kind of barrier um, out of sticky tape. And we're like, how can we do, we can't make that awful noise during his opera. I know Philip's, you know, radical, but um, we discovered that there was a man who had um, been working in a packing factory and he made, um, he'd been driven crazy by the sound of tape. And he designed a sticky tape that when you unrolled it went, Ooh. And we christened it silo tape because it was like silent. Um, and it meant that we could do the beautiful thing with sellotape on the stage, sticky tape, scotch tape in different parts of the world, um, and make this image. And then we make this barrier that becomes a kind of representation of, of Satyagraha, which is this, this um, concept that Gandhi created about protest. And it basically means truth force or love force and to protest and activism, not by violence, but by this particular um, meditative process in a way um, where you work on yourself when you go into uh, conflict and protest. And this sticky tape barrier was then snipped at both ends and the aerialists picked it up and made an enormous figure in the air of this kind of uh, uh, figure of, 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 of almost like a ghost in the air protest. And I love um, the, the reincorporation of scotch tape, sellotape, you know, throughout a lot of the creative endeavours. And I love the fact there is a creative solution to make the tape more silent for yes. opera. And the fact you found somebody fairly random to you until that point that was going to solve that problem for you. Yeah, well, that would be less... Uh, that would be the people working, you know, on the production side who found this, which was was great. What you mustn't do is store it in a cold room. You like found they out. did uh, <laughs> on, uh, on the first uh, show at the Metropolitan Opera, because then it does make noise because it goes all stiff and crackly. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, when you said go back to the tank, just to remind listeners, that's about going back to the flotation tank, which is your clearing, where you go to uh, reflect and, and go deep in what's required next in where your mindscape is going. It's a fascinating proposition. Yes, it's not a tank, the other kind of tank. <laughs> <laughs> well, what type of tank do you mean at that point? Well, it's not a, it's not a, 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 a centurion oh. tank. It's, yes, it's not a, 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 a sort of object of war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Obstacle of, of, um, yes. of the mind, which is fantastic. Yeah. So here we are. Um, we've, we've, what's so lovely is we've sort of gone away from the reef slightly and that um, I was trying to record as in a 45 minute programme, but it sort of overlapped into part two. I'm sorry. 
I just no, no. I burble on. No, you burble, you burble beautifully, which you know could be the name of a show. Who knows? But um, it, we'll keep going, shall we? In that we're, yep. we're in the clearing, we're shaking your tree. Uh, did we get the quirky or unusual fact about you that we couldn't possibly know until you tell us, Dalia McDermott? Um, I mean, I don't know if this is slightly cheating because um, when we formed our company, Improbable. The first show that we made was a show called um, 70 Hill Lane. And you mentioned earlier the show that you'd been on stage with us, which is a show called Life Game. And again, Life Game is one of Keith Johnston's ideas where you have a guest and there's a team of improvisers and someone picks, the guest picks someone from the improvisers to play them for the evening. And they then go through scenes from their life. And um, they don't ever play themselves. They play other people from their lives. So you might end up playing your grandfather or a teacher that influenced you or a hero or whatever. So I decided that I wanted to tell a particular story from my life, from my childhood. And I was basically the first improbable show was me life gaming me, as it were. And this show was called 70 Hill Lane, which is an address in Manchester. Um, and it was the house that I grew up in. And the story of that show was that in my teenage years, there was this brief period of about three days when um, there was a poltergeist in our house. Um, and it, it basically, um, me and my best friend, my mum and dad were at work. My granny was away. So it was just us in the house. And during these three days, this thing, which started on the outside of the house, knocking on the door, um, came inside the house and threw things around and, and scared us. And uh, play basically, it was like a trickster. It was like a trickster spirit. Um, we never saw it. Like, it wasn't a ghost that we saw, but we saw it throw things from the corner of your vision um and it had this incredible knack of knowing just when you'd forgotten about it and that would be the moment it would play the trick on you so it would never be like when you, something's going to happen whatever it always knew when you'd stop thinking about it and then it would something would just go and flick and hit the lamp above you and drop next to you and and what was so extraordinary then, you were so matter-of-fact, there was a poltergeist in my life for three days. Yeah. What's your sort of belief about that? Because it was a fact and it happened. I mean, in a way, it was part of, it was part of, and actually it's another one of those things where you go, it, this shaped me really. It was at the time, as it was happening, it was not scary, which was kind of weird because there were sort of officially scary things it was kind of like being in an altered state a bit like what happens when you're in an emergency or a, an accident or you don't you're not you're just going to another zone well hyper vigilant do you mean or, or something different it, it wasn't hyper vigilant it was more like a flow state and your brain was constantly working to explain it so at the time we were saying someone's got into the house, they've broken into the house. someone's outside, it's kids mucking about. But it it wasn't. 
it was you were dashing to the rational but there was no rational explanation in the there was an, every time you tried to find the rational the floor wasn't there it's like that thing of groundlessness afterwards of course i had to convince my parents that i hadn't been taking drugs <laughs> that we a bit because that night after the first day then it got really scary because this thing had got into the house and gone to the top of the house up to the attic and was throwing things down the stairs and we'd, we'd climb up to the top and it would throw things and we'd go, ah, run down the stairs and they'd bounce down the stairs afterwards. Little small things. This thing that I mentioned in my earlier, in the previous one, this little coin medal, that's the sort of thing it would throw. It would find strange little objects and it would play jokes. So you didn't feel it was like a personal attack, nor were you in peril. Or, or, I mean, what's your, again, we can't rationalise because the floor's not there, but, but what, what do you think its intention was? Well, it's kind of interesting because what the show was basically about, I know it happened. It doesn't matter whether it happened or not, or that I have to convince people that it happened. It's part now of my mythic story and part of my creative story. It, it, it animated objects. Um, so one thread of that narrative for me is I've spent my life animating objects puppetry uh, and I didn't realize this till I thought oh yeah that's kind of palty we called him palty we palty. christened him palty that's and like has palty, palty. Ever, has palty ever reincorporated in your life palty's um never in that intense way that it did every now and again I might have some moments where I go oh I wonder if that Palty, that coins come from where's that come from but not not in any big way but what i would say that the energy that palty had was a sort of trickster energy and i have that energy when i'm on stage sometimes i have that energy as a creative energy in That's me a sort of sprite like proposition is what you're saying isn't it, it it's mysterious it's mischievous. It, it, it pushes boundaries a little bit. Yep. It connects things that wouldn't usually be connected. So, you but, know, I, I don't care now whether people believe me or not or whether they think I'm crazy. I know what my yeah, story yeah. is. And I made a show about it. And uh, that show took me to New York and helped me create a theatre company. In that show, we explored sticky tape for the first time so it's like as a creative exercise not i kind of re-excavated it because i tried to talk about it at school at the time to people and people did like take the piss out of me and i thought i need to probably stop talking about this because people don't believe me and they think i'm mad um and but now, I, brother, was it your brother you were having the experience with? That was my best friend next oh, door. You had two sisters. Your best friend next yeah. door. So, you, do you still discuss it? Talk about it? I, I haven't seen Carl for a while. I went back to Manchester with Dow of Glass, and um, I would say Dow of Glass, which is the film that I film. I'm going to become a film. Um, that it's the the show that I made with Philip Glass was kind of like a revisitation of that kind of storytelling. So it was the stories of my um, first interest in, in theatre, the stories of my obsession with Philip and getting to know him. But 
it was also a return to Manchester where I grew up and I'd never ever really performed much at all or created in Manchester and I got to perform it at the Royal Exchange last pre-lockdown um, and his brother turned up Michael but Carl wasn't around but I'd, I'd like to know I'd like to check in with him and think do you ever think about Polti and yeah you know, and in the show I went back to, to the house which we'd left and it had become an old people's home and they wouldn't let me in because I said oh, I was born in this house I'd like to you know they wouldn't let me in but I did think about I wonder if the poor old people that are in there get their yeah. suit played with by Polti and does he does he throw things across the room now and again who knows who knows? And also uh, astounding, they didn't let you in. That's a brilliant influencing line. I was born here. Will you let me in? You, know, you can imagine that they gave, yeah, come on in. But it's quite strict that they didn't. And of course, yeah. 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 Wonderful stuff. Um, and by the way, your your um, your love of animating objects um, using sellotape, in my own experience of life game, I'm not expecting you to remember this, but I was talking about a childhood in Uganda. And I was there when Idi Amin was overthrown by Milton Obote. And there was a time when my mum would cross somewhere called the Owen Falls Dam. And the army shut it down one fateful, never to be forgotten day where there mm. were three bodies into the turbines, which is pretty wow. extreme. But your ensemble, and I think it was Neil Ashdown that was playing me in that particular version that yeah. night just asked me to pick somebody and and you were all um using i think tissue paper yes to sonify the the, the bodies tumbling over and i just remember wow. that experience of just watching that thinking oh because it's absolutely it's 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 truth and it's real but it's animated so it's very profound so i know your you know your puppetry passion is part of what you do i mean what one of the things that's interesting about those materials is they're very basic human material well not human nature materials mm. so paper um even sticky tape uh, you know um and that we use that with the philip glass music and that the kind of movement that you get from that really relates to his music but also the images that you make if you build um, Animo. I remember someone saying, I want to see Venice. <laughs> oh my God. And <laughs> in about 10 minutes, we built Venice from cardboard and sticky tape. And so, and at the end of it, the audience go, Wow, it's Venice. <laughs> and they see Venice more than if we'd made a hyper realistic, accurate set of Venice. And that's the dream door. So the humble materials are an invitation, like a dream door to imagine and that's what's different about theater and, and and actually peter brook talks about this if you go and see a film you see one image so you you're it's it's light flickering but you're seeing one image if you go and watch a performer and they look out at the audience and they talk about being in uganda and they see the night sky out there you're seeing a double image you're seeing that performer there, and at the same time, they've painted on the back of your imagination screen, the back of your head, another image, a dreaming image of that place that that performer is standing in. And it's double, sometimes more than that, the layers to it. That's something that theatre sometimes forgets that it can do, that film, video, TV can't do and in the discussions about will theatre be replaced by 
will theatre end up online? And that's the thing that people mustn't forget is what you get from that live experience. And we haven't talked about this yet, but your desire to keep that type of conversation going is curated in your space, which is called Devoted and Disgruntled, um, which is an extraordinary, you know, as you've said, you're a conversation facilitator as part mm. of what probable theatre do. But do you want to just tell the sort of source story of that, the genesis story of how Devoted and Disgruntled came about? So um, it, it, it comes back to the, the what shaped me. It was another book. And it, it was a book... Um, that someone gave me and said, oh, you think you might be interested in this book? And it, it's sat on my shelf for a while. And it did that ridiculous thing where it fell off the shelf. And I went, I've not read this. Oh, I must my read mate, Holty gave it a nudge off the shelf. Holty gave it a nudge and it fell off the shelf. Yeah. And this is the book. It's called Open Space Technology, um, a user's guide. And it's basically, um, what's interesting about it is I, I began to, to read it and I saw rhymes with um, Keith Johnston's work. So a guy called Harrison Owen, who was an ex-minister who wears a cowboy hat <laughs> with a group of other people, created it about nearly 30 years ago. And it's a way of large groups of people gathering and there are a series of principles that organise the whole event. If you're going to do the full Monty of the the pucker event it is two and a half days at the beginning of the event you have a question an urgent question to work on you sit in a big circle and you do what's called opening the space so basically you explain how the day is going to run and you explain the principles and then people call sessions on anything that they want there's no timetable so it's the empty space to begin with by after an hour, people have programmed the two and a half days fully. And there are all these different sessions that happen, happen simultaneously. There's the law of two feet or the law of mobility, which means you, you only go to sessions that you want to go to. You leave if you're not interested or you're not learning and you're not contributing. So you don't ever stay where you don't want to be. And it, there's, a series, there's a series of satellites around the main hub of what yes. you're there to discuss and debate. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, you gather in a circle and you check in as a whole group again. So it's a way of working together incredibly collaboratively. Self-organisation happens by itself, as it were. And as a byproduct, it creates community connection through meaningful conversation. Now, I read the book and um, there's an exercise that Keith Johnston does. And it, I've, I've called it the walkout exercise and it was basically a feedback exercise. And he said he spent years trying to get companies to be honest in their feedback, ensembles to be honest in their feedback to each other. The hardest thing to do is to be honest to your other performers about that's annoying or that doesn't work or and he wanted people to say when they were bored when they were watching a scene he said I got them to hold their hand up and lower it if they were, I got them to close their eyes if they were bored and it, they still wouldn't do it he said I've finally discovered it I put the rows of seats far enough apart and then if 
you someone starts improvising if you get bored you stand up and you walk out the room and it was the first time people genuinely got and this is crazy scary exercise where you have to keep the audience in the room but they leave and it's like a kind of hardcore practice but what you discover is that what keeps people in the room isn't being uh, funny doing you know working hard trying to be funny coming up with crazy ideas getting desperate and saying stage what keeps people in the room is that you start telling stories boom i love that and by the way it's so relatable the idea of this sort of open space in everything we've been talking about but also yeah. even in the construct of what i'm we're doing here together today the idea of a clearing where it's open yes. interpretation and it's brimming and charged with potential where anything's possible and it's yeah. up to us where we go because it's a structure but it's as you said there's a structure with satellites to the yes. forum that's there to discuss in yeah. Gruntled, yeah. but it's so one of the things about impro games is um and systems or games theory talks about this. The more rules there are, the less sophisticated the game is. The simpler and more elegant the rules are, the more sophisticated the behavior is. So in open space technology, Harrison's principles, um, including the law of two feet, which was like the walkout exercise. So basically, people who dominate use your two feet to vote is that what that means so you, you well, it may, basically, if you're in a, in a group that's discussing something if someone's like hogging the conversation and they're they're boring you you go i'm not going to stay and you leave so two feet literally get on your two feet and and vote yeah or whatever means you have it could be yeah, four yeah. of course it could be four wheels or whatever law of mobility because we don't all have two feet yes. but what it means is that there's a holding space of the conversation even the knowledge that um people can walk out means that people who are fond of their own voice get the message that they have to be maybe listen more yes so i read the book and i went this is like a great big keith johnston impro exercise but it's about all the stuff that i never know how to deal with and I go, I don't want to deal with that. I just want to make theatre. I don't want to get into all this. Diff I, I, so I basically, you write an invitation. And I wrote this invitation about how people talked about the theatre community. Where is it? I don't feel it. Um, and I realised, oh, I'm devoted and disgruntled to this, about this. You know, Wrote this invitation and I thought, the other people in the company said, I think there'll be about 30 odd people. Over 200 people signed up. I'd never been to an open space event. I'd only read the book. So I literally, like Michael Chekhov, I followed the instructions. Absolutely. And it was like a miracle because it got to the moment where I went, now it's time, call your sessions. And I thought, do you know, there's nothing's going to happen. And then slowly people started stepping into the middle and calling their sessions. And it was like a miracle. And then I said, everybody, the marketplace is open. Go to the sessions you want to go to. And your main job as a facilitator is to do nothing really, really well. Just be present and hold the space. So I discovered this thing that engaged with other elements of my work, which 
in a way that really was congruent with the improvisational stuff. Sorry, you were going to say something. Um, I've almost, well, I interrupted you and I thought, oh, I mustn't do that at this point. It was just the, um, I can't remember what I was going to say, actually. So, um, yes, I'm just um, really intrigued by what you're saying. The idea of the, oh, yes, it's about feedback. Everyone knows the adage, feedback, it's a gift, but it's a very difficult space to be truly attentive in it. Yes. I've remembered now, it was um, your notion of Pulte, which has seems to nudge you on. Yes recurring theme there is an adage which is probably uh, a bit hackney but it's what's meant for you won't pass you by yes really intrigued by you know you're playing it forward with the michael Chekhov philosophy with the book about the you know disvoted and disgruntled Mm. how to how to curate a space i think there's obviously a real generic factory default setting wrong expression but how you like to curate spaces Mm. Mm. i mean i think and you'll know this as a as a as a performer doing impro. You sit on the side of of the stage, and there'll be a moment where there's a scene happening. the The worst thing in the world that can happen is that the performer next to you turns to you and says, "Shall we go on as policemen?" And you go, oh, I, "I I don't know." <laughs> yeah, yeah. The moment's gone. Yes. It's and it's already too late. But that person had an impulse and they didn't trust that impulse. What they could have done was grabbed your arm, stepped into the space and gone, hello, 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 or whatever it is they were yes. going to do. And you would have to join in that. And then it, it would have been the right moment. Now, those impulse moments... Ideally, you're trying to create space, curate space where people trust in those impulses. They don't censor them. They don't go, shall I, shan't I? They trust themselves. Shall I call a session about this because it's alive in me now? And they trust it. So that's the most creative space where people are connected to their own inner impulses and they believe in the experience they're having and they feel supported by both themselves and the group of people around them to do that. And that's what I'm most interested in doing. Um, you know, you talked about uh, alchemy. You know, things can go wrong in, in processes. Often it's because everyone gets disconnected from their own impulses. And when that starts to happen, because people are worried about, is it the right idea? What they're going to say? What the audience is going to think? You can really lose that sense. And it's in the space and the atmosphere that you can create that that can be healed, I think. Beautifully put. If I may, I'm going to award you with a cake now, Phelan. Oh, thank you. You're very welcome for gracing us with your presence here in the Good Listening To show and podcast clearing. And this is, again, a lovely thing open to interpretation, whereby you're going to put a cherry on the cake, which is the legacy of our conversation. Mm. And you can go where you like um, in that it's open to interpretation again. uh, But we must take no longer than five minutes in what's about to happen, I think. Uh, This is um, open to interpretation in that it's what advice you might give to a younger version of yourself, for Mm -hmm. example, could be a favourite quote that's always pulled you towards your future. And then inspired by Shakespeare, all the world's a stage. You know, what's your legacy? How would you, when all is said mm. and done, most like to be remembered? Um, 
Uh, the thing that's alive in me at the moment, and, and it slightly jumps to the legacy thing, I'm aware that um, I've been making theatre a long time. I'm in my late 50s now. A bit of me still believes I'm the young trickster Palti, but another bit of me knows that I'm an I'm a kind of a, a good potential a candidate for stepping into eldership or elderhood, whatever that is. Um, in order for that to happen for my company, um, I feel like having resisted over the years the temptation to run buildings, be connected to us, but I kind of want a home. And so there's a dream there about um, uh, having a building in which the stuff I've learnt, the stuff that all the people that I've worked with over the years have learnt is shared. Um, and there's a space for, you know, we as performers, improvisers, you know, outdoor artists, devisers, creators, we don't, and it's been very apparent in the pandemic, we don't really have a home. Uh, lots of freelancers felt outside of conversations in buildings and so on. I would like the the dream to believe, basically, if you ask, there's the quote, and I'll get it wrong. It's if, um, if 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 you build it, they will come. I think it's if you build it, he will come. But if you build it, they will come. I will rewrite it. I I feel like. Um, there's the potential to create a space that's like an empty space, an empty creative space where the open space events can happen, where the sharing of the impro work can happen, where the sharing of the, the creativity ideas that we've talked about that don't just connect to theatre, but beyond that, can be disseminated, shared, looked after, and a sense of community around that. And people who think in a particular kind of creative way, like we've been talking, could gather. So um, my legacy would be that I believe in that. I don't know whether it will happen or whether I can, we can make it happen. But I had an idea, which was that I should make a show about it, about the process of trying to make this dream of a beautiful creative building that's connected to the landscape, maybe. It's not in the middle of a city. It's, it's got a kind of connection to the landscape in some way. If I start to make a show in the same way that I said, I'm going to make a show with Philip Glass, can I get him to be on stage with me? And I did in the end. Can I create a show about the making of a building? And I was saying to the other people in the company, you know, if it doesn't work and we don't make it happen, we'll still have a really good show because there'll be a good show about how I didn't manage to make it happen. So that's my little legacy to uh, this conversation is to say that out loud. Um, and, and thank and, you for saying it here. And if I may, you're, you're a wise owl, Phelan McDermott, and I think you are ready to accede to that position of, you know, what's got you here is not going to get you there. So there's an airlock, a dream door in oh, what comes next for you. I'm going to show you something. I gathered some things. Look at that. Do you know what that is? What is that? 
So I'm describing it. it. It's got leaves at the bottom and there's a number of like strands. It looks a little bit like a small shrub or a plant. It's ceramic. It's actually made from owl claws, not real owl claws. And that comes from Alan Garner's house. And I don't know if you know Alan Garner. He wrote a book called The Owl Service, which is a beautiful children's book. And one other one of the things that shaped me. And I, he came and saw my show in Manchester and he showed me around. He's got a little museum of stuff from his beautiful uh, story books and things in his house. And he gave me this and it's a little beautiful plant made of owl claws. And when you said wise owl, I went, ah, oh, there we are. There's Alan Garner's and his owls. In service of owls, the owl that is Phelan McDermott. I mean that as a real compliment, by the way. Um, I'm sorry about the lack of time in needing to come to the end of part two now. So you've been listening to uh, the Good Listening To show with me, Chris Grimes, interviewing the wonderful uh, theatre maker and uh, wonderful conversation facilitator, the wise owl that has been Phelan McDermott. Just quickly mention the URLs. Where can we find out more about you on the internet? Um www.improbable.co.uk and that's um our theatre company improbable um and also www.devotedanddisgruntled.com and and um on twitter i'm uh at open spacer at open spacer Thank you, Phelim, so much for, um, as I would like to say, gracing us with your presence here in the Good Listening To Show Clearing. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Good night. Thank you. You've been listening to the Good Listening To Show here on UK Health Radio with me, Chris Grimes. Oh, it's my son. If you've enjoyed the show, then please do tune in next week to listen to more stories from The Clearing. If you'd like to connect with me on LinkedIn, then please do so. There's also a dedicated Facebook group for the show too. You can contact me about the programme, or if you'd be interested in experiencing some personal impact coaching with me, care of my Level Up Your Impact programme, that's chris at secondcurve.uk. On Twitter and Instagram, it's... At that Chris Grimes. So until next time, from me, Chris Grimes, from UK Health Radio, and from Stan... To your good health. And goodbye.